But let me pray for us. Lord, as we begin our time together today, thank you so much for, for everything that you're doing for us. Thank you for giving us these, these few minutes together, and thank you for your love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm on a bit of a time crunch this morning. That's why I'm not wearing my, my usually stunning outfits that I, you know, I, I am kind of, you know, I, I, I resisted it my whole life. My dad was a real, is a real clothes horse, and, I, and I've always resisted that, but I'm starting slowly sort of falling into that. And so, but, but, you know, so ordinarily I don't wear jeans and stuff like that, but I am, I am on a tight schedule this morning. People were surprised to see me. It's because, you know, they thought, well, we're leaving today. What's his flight? Well, you know, I, my flight's not until about 2 o'clock. And, and then, you know, and I started looking at other things, but I, you know, but I finished packing, all that kind of stuff. But have you ever felt like there's just never enough time to get everything done? Um, so, I mean, I tell you, so, so one of the things that somebody said I should do before we go to Poland, is said, oh, well, have you checked the State Department's travel advisory page? I thought, oh, no, I haven't done that. I mean, yes, it's a war zone. I probably ought to check that, see if there's like a, <laughs> see if there's like any security issues in Warsaw. The good thing is the Pope was just there, and oh, by, I should have put this in the slideshow. Uh, the, one of our mission partners who we're going to see had an audience with the Pope yesterday, which I thought was very cool. Um, so, but, so this is particularly irrelevant. I can show that to him. Um, but the, uh, but you know, as I, I thought, well, okay, so the security is going to be pretty good. The vice president was just there. President may be going next week. The Pope's been there. So I think you know, internal on the ground security in Warsaw is pretty good. That of course doesn't mean there couldn't be bleed over things like that. So I said, I better check the State Department website. So I went to the State Department website. Da 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 da. Warsaw, Poland. Click. Boom! My whole my whole screen explodes in red, and it's like, do not travel. Level four, critical. Nature. I'm like, oh my gosh. You know, maybe I really should have thunk this through a little bit more. You know, I, I prayed about it. I thought it through. I sang a lot of very inspirational hymns, but you know, maybe that wasn't. And, and I was like, I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. So I started reading. It says. Coronavirus is on the rise. And I was like, what? And I looked, I looked at the date for the State the Department of Travel Advisory. It was November 2021. I'm like, update your stuff. You know, is, is there anything else going on in the neighborhood other than coronavirus? Maybe, yeah, a war. You know, so there wasn't anything about that. It was just there was an outbreak in, 2020, in November of 2021. But, you know, of course, that did, you know, remind me of the fact that one of the reasons I'm in a time crunch this morning is because... I have to go from here directly to my doctors to get a COVID test because Poland requires a, po a COVID test for travelers and, and people like me. Not if you're a refugee, that two million people are coming across the border right now. But if you're flying in, you have to have a COVID test. So anyway, sort that one out. Um, well, it's just like here actually. But, um, so I have to get a COVID test and it has to be 24 hours before I enter the country. Now, our travel time, and I mean from the time I get on the plane in San Antonio to the time I step off the plane in Warsaw is 18 hours. That's not a lot of buffer. If anything gets delayed, anything, you know, there's ice on the, on the uh, runway in Chicago, we can't take off, all this kind of stuff, then we're, you know, that's, people are like, you know, we're playing for your traveling safety, Bob, for traveling mercies. Like one of the traveling mercies I hope you'll pray for is timeliness of all of our flights. Because that, that's the thing that always wigs me out. I've never once been concerned that my plane was going to fall out of the sky or crash. 
I have had multiple anxiety issues about us not making our connection, <laughs> you know, and, and, and we can all relate to that. But, you know, it's just between that and packing and wanting to be here for this Bible study and, and all, you know, all those sorts of things and, and like trying to make plans and connections and up and down. You know, I'm just like, ah, oh, I wish I just had a little bit more time to get done what I needed to do. Of course, you know, when you have a little bit more time, what does it do? It fills up with other stuff. But, you know, so there's never like that real window. But, you know, what, you know, what if, you know, what if I could just stop time and actually just put everything in slow motion so that I'd have enough time to get everything done? Well, you know, again, it is amazing how in the providence of God, he works these things out. Because the story that we're going to read today is about God stopping time so that, so that Joshua can do what he needs to do. I just, when I started putting these pieces together, I thought, oh, well, that's, that's exactly what I need. That's exactly what I want. Um, so, so we're in chapter 10 of the book of Joshua today. And, um, and in chapter 10, um, we, we see that you know, we've had some interesting things happen leading up to chapter 10. Where did I put my, put my clicker? Oh, there it is. So some interesting things leading up to chapter 10. We've, first of all, we've had the crossing of the Jordan River. Joshua has led the people across the Jordan, and they have established a base camp in Gilgal, which becomes kind of their, their home base for their, uh, for their operations in, uh, in, Jeru- uh, in Judea. And then um, we have the Battle of Jericho. Massive victory. And one thing that, that uh, I, and I wish I could remember who came up and was talking to me about this last week. One of the reasons that, that, that the Battle of Jericho was such an extraordinary miracle. You, I, mean, me, I mean, remember, they had, they had just renewed the covenant by circumcision the, the day before. They were, they were in a position where, they, um, where, they weren't, where nobody was in any good condition to fight. And then God gives them this, you know, what seems in a worldly way, this crazy game plan, this crazy strategy that they didn't even question because they didn't feel like fighting anyway. Um, they never even questioned, for this is how we're, you're going to conquer the city. It's going to involve marching, and it's going to involve shouting, it's going to involve trumpets, and then the walls are going to fall down, and you're going to just go in and take the city. So why, why did God do it that way? So that it would be undeniable that this was God's victory, that it was not human victory was not human strategy. I mean, we human beings could not have come up with that plan and would not have come up with that plan. But that battle was yet another of those shots heard round the world. Um, and we, you know, we hear that you know, even the crossing of the Jordan, the story of that made it all the way to, to Tarshish and back uh, so that the people of Jericho knew about that. I mean, so, so news is traveling quickly about all of these Hebrew victories. Then, in, st- in spite of the road bumps, in spite of the, the, um, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the sin of, of Akan and his family, we have the Battle of Ai, another major victory, not just because of its overwhelming nature, uh, it's, it's not just because of its overwhelming um, historical importance, but also because it too sent out word that these Hebrews are unstoppable. These, these Israelites and their God are unstoppable. 
Um, you know, it's, and it's, it's interesting, I think that the, both of these battles really sort of bring up something that is very important uh, in, you know, in, and I think in, in any type of warfare, but particularly when we're talking about God being involved. You can't measure what you can't see. And, you know, and, and the thing is, you know, the, I'm sure that the people of Canaan, you know, they saw the huge numbers of Hebrews, but they still thought we can fight them. We can, you know, if we just get enough allies together, we can still fight them. This is about numbers, right? The thing they couldn't see was not just the power of God, but the leaderness of God, the uh, leadership of God. Because, you know, in the Battle of Ai, who came up with this, you know, incredibly tactically masterful plan for the Battle of Ai? It was God. That was his battle plan. That wasn't Joshua's. That wasn't anybody else's. It was, it was God's battle plan for how they would draw them out and all of those sorts of things. And so the, the Hebrew people and, and, and primarily Yahweh, their God, have gained a huge reputation for victory, which leads us to what you all studied last week, the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were, were so freaked out they decided to put on beggar's clothes and go to the, and, and just try and con Joshua and the Israelites and say, hey, why don't you make a treaty with us? Because we're obviously no threat to you and we'd love to be your slaves, but we'd like to survive. And, and of course, you know, and we're, you know, we're from faraway lands, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. And Joshua said, oh, well, okay. You know, and, then, and then, you know, found out that he'd made a treaty with this local group, but Local group didn't, you know, didn't care. They were like, well, we would much more happily be alive and servants than dead and proud. And so they, so they, so we have this whole, you know, we have this concession where the, uh, where the, uh, where the Gibeonites make a treaty with the, uh, or rather the, Joshua makes a treaty with the Gibeonites. We won't fight you if you don't kill us. And so, so on the, you know, so after the Gibeonites cave, well, word of that spreads as well. So again, just, just think about what, what people have heard. Now for 40 years, first Egypt, then all of the, you know, then Bashan and Og and, and all the people in the Transjordan, I mean, all these, all these one after another victories, and now the Gibeonites have just folded. We, we don't even want to fight. And I'm sure that there were lots of others who were thinking that same way. So we come to chapter 9, uh, uh, excuse me, chapter 10, and um, and the verse and uh, chapter ten begins this way: As soon as Adonizek, king of Jerusalem, heard now uh, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all of its men were warriors. So Adonizak, king of, uh, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, and all these other guys whose names I'm not going to slaughter right now, uh, and said, come up, to me to, uh, come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon. Interesting. Let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and, uh, and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gideon, uh, uh, encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. So what's happened here? String of victories, morale is low, the Gibeonites fold, 
And the king of Jerusalem, which is obviously not yet the capital of Israel, um, says, whoa, 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 we are going to get slaughtered if we don't stand together. And the Gibeonites, which is not an insignificant city, it's, it's I mean, it's bigger than Ai was. It's, you know, what if now they've turned, and, and he isn't thinking of the details of this treaty. He's thinking they... He's thinking, they've made an alliance with Israel. What happens if other people start making an alliance with Israel and they turn conqueror? All of a sudden, we're, you know, those of us who don't want to be ruled by the Israelites are going to be overrun. And so he calls together all of these other pagan kings and says, we have got to band together and we have got to stop this. The Israelites are coming through and they've even coerced or they've seduced Gibeon to their cause. And now we have got to put a stop to that. We've not only got to put a stop to the Israelites and their weird slave religion that came from Egypt, and we've got to stand in, in between the, uh, we've got to stand in the way of them, and we've got to protect our Baalite culture, we've got to, uh, we've got to protect our Canaanite culture, and so we're going to stand together, and the way we're going to get everybody to rally to our flag is how? We're going to go punish Gibeon and show them what it means to turn and follow this God. We are going to punish them for, for giving themselves over to, to God and to Israel. I mean, this is a really you know, national, political, state-level state version of, of kind of mean girls or mean boys in high school. You stepped out of line and now we're going to exert massive fatal peer pressure to, to turn you back or to destroy you. Now, here's what I believe. I believe that yes, this is anger expressed at Gibeon, but I also think that this is, this is, a, uh, this is an attack meant to send a warning to anybody else who would dare stand against us. So we're, we're going to make an example of Gibeon so that they will not inspire anybody else to follow God. Now that's, we see that happening on a geopolitical level, that type of thing. We also see that sort of thing happening on a personal level. You know, if uh, I, I'll, I, you know, I'll confess, I, I pleasantly it did not happen, but I'll confess that when I announced to my fraternity brothers, and I think I told you all this a few weeks ago, you know, I was expecting kind of some blowback. You know, I did not expect them to receive that news well because we were, we, we were not, you know, I mean, I, it's so funny nowadays, I'm, I hear about these Christian fraternities at places like A&M and, and UT, and I'm like, huh, that sounds weird, you know, because that was not our pursuit. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, and you think about the peer pressure exuded by kids. I mean, we all grew up with the, you know, hearing the, and knowing the nicknames, you know, Holy Roller, Bible Thumper, all these sorts of things. There is a certain amount of peer pressure. Now, church may be socially acceptable on Sundays, but don't talk to me about it at the club or at the deer lease or on the, you know, on the boat when we're fishing. You know, there, you know that, it's, religion's fine as long as you remember, as long as it remembers its place and we keep it contained. But don't let it affect the rest of your life. And that's the kind of thing we're seeing here from these other kings. On a, you know, that's the personal level, but they're doing it on a macro level. Um, and so, 
So that's the, the, the impetus for this whole story. And so verse 6, And the men of Gibeon sent, Joshua at, uh, sent, uh, sent to Joshua at camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. We are being attacked. Come to us quickly and save and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell on the hill country are gathered against us. So what happens is that all these kings attack Gibeon, and Gibeon says, Hey, Joshua, remember us? Remember we said we wouldn't fight you. We're now your servants. We're carrying your wood, carrying your water. Um, we need some help. We've been attacked. And so Joshua goes to his aid, goes to their aid. And uh, says, so Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Underline that phrase at some point. This, I think this is the first time we, we see that um, that phrase, the mighty men of valor. I love that one particularly because if you remember, that shows up all the time in the David stories. The mighty men of valor are like this, this kind of super team of, you know, th these are like the best of the best. These are like the, the special forces of, of, of the Israelite army. And you see them, I think this is the first time we see any kind of reference to, not, and they weren't like one, they weren't like 10 people who live forever. These are guys who, like the, those types of people. Who, who just kind of are distinguished, and the knights of the round table sort of thing. But he took his mighty men of valor, um, and the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So the Lord promises Joshua this victory. And so Joshua then, verse 9, came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. I mean, again, I... Military history junkie, you know this is a quick march. This, I mean, this is this is like a Stonewall Jackson, where they come from sort of maneuver. That's that that was the thing about the, why Stonewall Jackson in the Civil War in the early days of the Civil War was so effective because he he was willing to force march and move his army all over the place before the Union armies could really figure out where he was. Joshua is doing the same thing. He's willing to march at night. He's got his men trained. They are disciplined. This army is not just some ragtag mob. They are, I mean, they are a national army, but they are a disciplined army. So they march up at night and through them, and the Lord through them, that is the, uh, the, the pagans, into a panic before Israel who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Mechadah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Okay, I want, you, I want you to start making notes of the things that God did to win this battle. Okay, just so just, okay. At, the time, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of, Jash of Jashar? There's one of your uh, eighth, uh, no, 10th century B.C. footnotes right there. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set, for, uh, to set for about a whole day. 
There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Now, to look at, this, to look at the analysis of this battle for just a second, what are the things that happened in this battle? Well, God, first of all, God did a lot of stuff in this battle that maybe we pass over. First of all, after, uh, after they got to, uh, after, excuse me, after they got to, oh, I'm going the wrong way. Uh, yeah, there we go. After they got to the battlefield, um, what does it say? That the Lord threw them into a panic. So these five kings, their five armies, you know, God, God took whatever realistic fears they had, these soldiers, and completely ramped that up. He completely shocked them and undermined their morale. And as soon as, as soon as the Israelites showed up, they just broke. And an army that is no longer disciplined is going to be defeated. An army that loses its nerve, it doesn't matter how, how good your arms, how, you know, how, how great your battle plan was, if you lose your nerve, then it's not going to come together. You know, that's why you hear every, every football game, Every college football game, every professional football game, they say, we've done the practice, we've, we've prepared, we've watched the game film, we've done the conditioning, now we just need to execute. You know, what's the difference between execution and not execution? It's all up here. You can work out every single one of these muscles to perform at a machine-like precision, and if the muscle between your ears, or if your heart fails, and you, and you bug out, then it's done. So what does God do? And, and again, it's not just that they got scared. It says the Lord sent a panic into them. This is, I mean, it was like God sent a, a mental and spiritual missile into the camp of, uh, of the pagans. And so they completely lose their nerve, and they fled before Israel. Um, the second thing he did, look at this, I mean, this is... This is crazy. I've got to, sorry, I've got to go all the way to here. Um, it says that he threw hailstones at them. Hailstones at them. And so, and now, you know, he's not talking about little sleet like we get here in San Antonio. He's talking about the kind of hail that they get in Odessa. Okay? I don't know how many times my, my, mother, my mother-in-law is in a war with their HOA because their HOA requires the, the, the terracotta tiles, okay? And those get blown away about <laughs> every two years from this, you know, this heavenly bombardment. And, you know, I, I will admit, you know, we had hail in South Carolina, we had hail in Santa Fe, but I never really took it seriously until we drove up one, uh, this is like two or three years ago, we drove up to Odessa, and there was a hailstorm, and I walked out, and I found a hailstone like this sitting on Morgan's, front, Morgan's parents' front walk. I pick it up, and I'm looking at it. It's about the size of a softball. And then I went over to the car. And so Morgan drives a Ford Expedition. And right at the joint, where the, and I'm talking about like right at the joint where the tailgate connects to the roof of the car, and right where the hitch is, this is a very reinforced part of the roof, there is a fist-sized 
dent, and, I, and I'm not talking about deep. I mean, it's, it's as wide as my fist and about a, you know, maybe an eighth of an inch deep dent in this car. And I'm, I'm looking at that thing, I thought, if that had hit one of us, it would have killed us. I mean, this is, this is an aerial bombardment from heaven. And, th and that was just a smooth one. It wasn't like one of these spiky ones you're seeing here. But, I mean, but God is actually just raining death on them. And they're being stoned from heaven. And so, so God is, you know, he is actively engaged in this battle. And so then, you know, then, then what happens? Well, according to the book of Jashar and the Bible, what is the book of Jashar? Jashar is one of those books that is mentioned in the Bible. We don't have a copy of it. We don't have any record of it. We don't know if it's a, um, a you know, given the name, it's one of those names that could be Canaanite, could be Hebrew, but we don't know what it says or what else it talks about. But you know, you, one of the great criticisms of the early biblical historical critical movement, which was really a movement that began in, uh, in the late 1700s and, and persisted through, well, some people would say it persists now, but really persisted through about the 1940s or 50s, was this whole idea that, well, you can't trust the Bible. I mean, this is a time during the age of human enlightenment when everything was redu being reduced to math and the science and chemistry. And, and the more we learned, the more arrogant people got. They say that really th that period really ended with the Titanic. Because what was the Titanic? The unsinkable ship. We have finally built a ship that is unsinkable. You know, to, to which God and nature said, mm, we'll see. Um, you know, but but it, you know, the, the, a lot of people have drawn comparisons to the you know the the Titanic and the power of Babel, a Tower of Babel. You know, when people start to become the, become arrogant. Well, one of the propositions of the biblical historical critical movement was that well, the only place we ever hear these stories about Israel or about God, about Yahweh are the only place we ever hear about them is the Bible. And even though it's the best, most thorough history book we have for all this period of time. We don't have any other sources that confirm it. We don't have any other, you know, if this stuff would have happened, the Egyptians would have written something about it. If this had happened, the Babylonians would have written something about it. If this, you know, we'd at least find little tablets and all this other stuff. And, you know, this, so this, this is all just myth. So, and, and, you know, and they used, you know, they used archaeology to back that up because archaeology was just kind of a, a very uh, new science at that point. It, it was only now starting to go from, it was starting to make that shift from, from, from grave robbing to real science, where they actually studied things before they removed them and studied their context. Well, the book of Jashar is one of those things that, you know, pff, who knows if that ever really happened. You know? Well, we, ha we don't have the book of Jashar, but what we do have is other contemporary stuff. Because here's the thing, the science that was once used to, pr to, mis or to disprove the Bible is every day being undone. Because, why? Because they keep doing more science. Science is really dangerous when it stops. And so what you have in the fields of archeology, span in the fields of cosmology, including everything from physics to, you know, to mathematics, all these things that, you know, it, that may maybe they don't prove you know, a specific event, but they do say, oh, well, no, this could be possible. Um, now, 
interestingly, the, uh, I, I was not able to find it, but there, you know, there have been all kinds of interesting studies um, recently about the Earth, its rotation, its gravitational pull. You know, I just, you know, I, just like you all, I probably learned that you know, gravity is a constant. It's the same everywhere, blah, 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 but that's not true. Gravity is different at different points on Earth. Now, not enough to where we would really notice it. Um, I've always thought that the reason gravity felt heavier here than there or now than then was, had more to do with my eating habits than, um, <laughs> but, but there really is. You know, there are different places where gravity is stronger or weaker than other places, but there is kind of the constant, you know, sort of the norm of what gravity is. And as, but as scientists have studied that, they, they keep finding sort of little anomalies. You know, a day is not always a day. Time is not always time, and, and why are there so many idiosyncrasies? You know, what, we, we trust these calendars that the ancients came up with, with this many days and these, all these different adjustments we have to make, but then, you know, but then why do we have leap year? You know, why do we have, you know, why do we add a day in February every four years? Well, so that we can, because we know that the thing's slightly off and we gotta reset the clock. Well, one of the things that they've looked back and they've, you know, they've, they've looked at is like, you know, there was a day or there, there, there seems to be sort of an anomaly about uh, what, what is this, 50, you know, 1500 years BC, or whatever this was, 10,000 years BC. And, uh, and, and, and it seems to, you know, like everything's a little off. And, they, and uh, I forget who the scientist was, he said, but if you, if you kind of go back and calculate or, or add in maybe, you know, 12 or so hours it kind of lines up again. So I'll find that study for you because I don't like to just throw out a story and make, and, and without back, being able to back it up. But you know, there, there are actually scientific studies that, so, that show that this sort of thing has happened. What's also interesting is that in other cultures, you know, like Chinese culture, other Middle Eastern cultures, Mesoamerican cultures have talked about, you know, about this kind of this one day where time sort of stood still. Now, what does it mean that Joshua commanded the sun to stand still? Well, really, it's interesting. Here they said nothing like this has ever happened before. Uh, the Lord heeded the voice of a man. Doesn't say that Joshua commanded the Lord, but he did say, say God, God said, huh, well, you need more time? All right. We'll do this. We'll freeze the day. Um, and, what we'll, and, and so there is something to be reckoned with here. And this is one of those fascinating places where science and, and the, biblical, the biblical story really can lead us to deeper understandings of both. First of all, one of the things that has often been used to dismiss this story is the idea that, well, you can't, the sun doesn't stand still. You can't make the sun stand still. First of all, that's just ancient hyperbole. That's just a myth. And we know that, first of all, because why? Because we found out, because we're really smart people, that, you know, two, you know, what is it now? 600, 700 years ago, we figured out that the sun doesn't rotate around the earth, or doesn't circle the earth, but rather the earth circles the sun. So obviously the Bible is wrong, full of errors, there is no God, Jesus was a fraud, and blah, blah, blah. This is how the stream goes. You know, because, because the sun doesn't rotate around the earth. But doesn't it look that way? I mean, seriously, when, when, when you're sitting here watching, you know, watching the sun go across, you're at the beach, and you're trying to calculate how much longer the kids are going to want to stay out here, 
you're, I mean, you're watching the sun and it's kind of going across like that. Doesn't it look like it's moving? Or do you feel like you're at the tilt-a-whirl at the fair and you're going like, there's the sun in a fixed point and you're wheeling around it? Is that how you feel at the beach? Not me. I feel like the sun moves across the sky. And so does everybody else. And, you know, and, and even though the ancients didn't know that that was really the way it worked, we still talk about it that way, don't we? The sun rises and the sun sets. No, the sun just sits there. We do all the setting and rising. The phrase that I want you to learn today, you see it on your sheet, is the word phenomenological. Everybody say that with me. Phenomenological. Okay? A phenomenological perspective means the way we describe a phenomenon from our point of view. Okay? So, you know, where does that come from? I mean, it, it's, a, it's actually an idea that is picked up by Albert Einstein in the theory of relativity. You know, it, how do things look from my perspective? How does time move? Well, it's relative to certain objects and sort of things like that. So, you know, it's like space is just sitting out there, but, you know, my life is moving, and so it looks like time is moving. And so there's, you know, it's called a phenomenological perspective. A phenomena is a thing that happens. Let me introduce you to one of my pet peeves. Okay, one of the most overused words incorrectly nowadays is the word phenomenal. You hear people say it all the time. That cake was phenomenal. That, you know, that game was phenomenal. That mo movie was phenomenal. That dress is phenomenal. The word phenomenal means that it exists in time. <laughs> so, so if somebody says to you, that dress is phenomenal, they are in fact correct. It does exist at a point in time, and I'm observing that. It doesn't mean it's nice. Or, so, if you, so you can use it that way. If, you, if somebody says, do you like my new outfit, and you really don't, you can say, that is phenomenal. And you're right. <laughs> and they're going to feel happy, and you won't have lied, uh, because it's really not as good as you think it is. Uh, but but so, so what is the opposite of phenomenal? The opposite is, is noumenal. A noumenal perspective is like a heavenly perspective or a metaphysical, kind of an off-time perspective. We aren't going to get into that. But a phenomenological perspective means that here's a person and they see the sun going across the sky and at some point he speaks and it stops. So does that mean that, God, that, that Joshua stopped the sun, that God stopped the sun? No. But it, what it could mean is that God stopped the rotation of the earth. Now, not trying to, I, I, you know, you heard me say a few weeks ago, let's not try to explain away the miracles and start saying, oh, well, this could appear this way. It could be a mirage or it could be a refraction. And you see that I've got some of the theories of what this might be, an eclipse or whatever. Let, let's, let's, let's take, this is where I become a biblical literalist. Let's take what this might have been, that a holy God who was powerful enough to create the universe and everything in it, including the laws of physics, can also say, I'm going to make this work for a minute, for a day, for 12 hours. So, I mean, whose laws are the laws of physics? If we have a, if we have a theocentric and theological worldview, then who are, you know, who, who's in charge? Who suspends the game? Who's the referee who can call a timeout? That's God. 
And so rather than trying to figure out what might have happened accidentally, let's figure out, first of all, do we believe that a God who created the world and who, had, and who rules over everything could actually stop things? Because people are saying, well, there, there's another physical, or another, um, uh, another principle at hand here. If the sun stood still, what would that actually mean? It would mean that the earth was no longer rotating. And rotation is part of what creates that gravitational pull that keeps all of our feet on the ground. You know, what happens when there's no gravity? Well, just look at the, you know, people who go up into space. They, you float around, everything, you know. It doesn't mean that every, I love, I love the idea that when people say, well, if the Earth stopped rotating, then everybody would just start flying off into space. No, you would just, you'd just be floating there, and, when, and the next time the wind blew or something like that, you'd be, move a little bit, and you wouldn't necessarily stop unless you grab something. But, so, but what if gravity stopped? Well, God, you know, God who you know, knows all things would be able to figure that out. Does that mean Bob Fuller can figure out how that would happen? Does that mean that there's a lot of a, a advanced math involved in figuring that problem out? Sure, but I'm pretty sure that the God who created the universe is pretty good at the advanced math part because he invented that too. The point is that that this is one of those things that you either believe in miracles or you don't. I mean, I, you know, there's, there in, in my mind, there is sufficient evidence that it did happen. Even modern science allows that it could have happened. And I have no reason to believe it didn't happen. Because, I, you know, now some of you would say, well, that's because you're a Christian. Fine, I, I concede that. But that doesn't mean that I am against science because I think that there is, there is some other stuff at play here. But I also love the very personal nature of this. At a time when what, what Joshua and the people of Israelite needed was time, God said, all right, you're going to accomplish your mission. I'm going to give you what you need to do this. And from a church perspective and a Christian perspective, we need to heed that. Because God is not going to send us on a mission without giving us the resources to complete that mission. And one of the resources sometimes we need is time. Now, you may say, well, we didn't have time to finish this. Well, maybe, maybe we did accomplish God's mission. We just didn't accomplish the, all the other added parts that we didn't, you know, that we, didn't, that we thought were so necessary. So, in other words, God may have, God may have arranged this entire church event so that one person could hear his gospel. And then we get upset, then we get upset well, we didn't have time to, to, to run out the last, the last round of desserts. Okay, well, that wasn't part of God's mission. But there was plenty of time to get the mission done that he wanted accomplished. There was plenty of resources. You know, Tony Campolo talks about resources in this way. There was a, he was once preaching for this large church, and really you know, big, affluent church, and they had a mission project going on, and, Tony Campolo spoke, and afterwards they asked him to finish the, to, to do the prayer, and uh, and and they said, well, and, and Dr. Campolo, would you please pray that uh, that God would help us to raise the money to, for this mission project? And he looked around. and He said, No, I'm not going to pray that. He says, I'm looking around at this congregation. He says, God's already given you all the money. I'm going to pray that he will. I'm going to pray that you will give. You will use the money that he gave you for his purposes. I don't think he was invited to go back and speak there again. But, um, but it was, you know, 
But God gives us the resources we need. And, you, and, and even, even though I was complaining about it earlier, I feel like I've got 20 things that I've got to do still before I get on the plane this afternoon. But God's going to give me exactly enough time to do exactly what I need to do between now and then. I don't want to read anything more into it, but Ellie wasn't planning on coming home for spring break until she got an offer to go up to a friend's house in Austin and blah, blah, blah. So she had a little time to come home. You know, this was before, all, you know, all those plans were set, or, or none of those plans were set until, you know, all the stuff in Ukraine started to happen. And, you know, I would have felt, I mean, I, I feel good. I know I'm coming back. I know that we're going to be fine, all that kind of stuff. How do I know that? How do I, I am confident of the, of the Lord and his faithfulness. And I actually have a couple of really uncomfortable meetings that I have to attend to that are scheduled for after I get back, and there's no way the Lord's going to let me out of those. So, um, so anyway, so I feel pretty good about that. But, but I love the fact that, you know, even comment I'm going home, I know it would have been very scary for Elle had I not been able to see her. It would have been scary for Bo if I had not been able to see him before I got on the plane this afternoon. And so I was glad to be able, you know, and, and so God arranged the time. And one of the things Psalm 31 says is that, you know, he teaches us about our time. I forget the, ex uh, the exact phrase. Oh, well, here it is. He, uh, what does he say? Um, if you see it, tell me. Um, anyway, to, uh, I'll find it. Anyway, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday. And, people, and he was asking her, well, people seem like they're kind of freaked out about you going. And he out-Calvined me. He says, but, you know, the book of our days is already written. And I was like, oh, thank you. Yes, it's like, you know, this is, you know, it, you know if you believe that God's going to give you the time to do what he wants you to do, then, you know, our days are, our, our days are already literally numbered. You know, and so, so for me, as, you know, as a card-carrying Calvinist, this is kind of a gut check. Do I really believe that God has me in the palm of his hand? Um, so... You know, God uses these resources. God used hail. God used time. God used the heart, you know, emotion to, you know, to, to give Joshua this victory. So let me just, you know, as I knew that I would run out of time today because these are important things. Um, but after the battle, after, you know, after this total rout, one of the things that really displays the character of the leaders of these paganite kings, they ran and they hid in caves. And I want you to notice something about that story. There's an interesting symmetry here. They ran and they hid in caves. And while Joshua and the others, uh, while the army of Israel was going out and, and consolidating their victory, doing the, the, the mop-up operation, what did they do? They sealed them in the tomb. This interesting symmetry there. They rolled stones in front of, in, in front of the caves, and they, you know, it's kind of like a tomb. It's kind of a reversal of the, of the Easter story because when they opened the tombs, the guys came out alive, and then what? They executed them and sent them back and put them back in the same place. Now, I think there is a, there is a symmetry with the kind of a reversal of the empty tomb story of, of Jesus, but there's also a sort of a symmetry in, in the justice of God at this point because what did... You know, what did, Gideon, what did Joshua do to the Amorite kings or to the uh, pagan kings uh, you know, uh, in this story? He made an example of them. 
an example of what? Not of Israel's might, but these Gibeonites were under our protection. You know, they chose to follow God. And they were protected. They were vindicated. And you, we made an example of you because you tried to make an example of them. And here's the hand of the Lord being used in such a way to say, you can't do that. You can't do that. And so there is, a, there is that example going on as well. Um, so, you know, those are, you know, those are some thoughts that, that I wanted to... I think I listed some of the other theories for the sun standing still. You know, there was an eclipse. Um, the Earth's rotation slowed down, not stopped necessarily. Okay, all that. Um, but I, I really do think that there's a... I mean, I think that this is a fascinating story on just a lot of levels. Uh, but, but really, the important thing to note here is that um, in these battles, Joshua then, um, Joshua was able to claim victory over some very old enemies. Do you remember the, uh, uh, the sons of Anakim? Well, the sons of Anakim were, you know, were, the, were the giants who lived in the land that Joshua, you know, Joshua and Caleb came back with the good report and the other spies said, no, we can't go because they're giants in the land and we look like grasshoppers to them. These are the, you know, these ancient, you know, mighty warriors who are just, you know, who are all over the place. Well, in these battles, in this consolidating victory, you know, after the, after the battle of, um, after the battle in the land of Gibeon, um, they finally pushed they finally push the Anakim out of the land completely. They're not, they're not completely killed because they, some of them escape to places like, oh, I don't know, Gath? Ever heard of Gath? Who was from Gath? Goliath, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was not the only one. There's, there, are, there are others who show up. But, but, you know, this was sort of a moral victory as well as a strategic military victory for Joshua. You know, kind of, kind of finally, these people who scared the original the original exodus generation out of the land are finally pushed out themselves completely so um, you, you just see this this whole this whole campaign is starting to come together um, any quick questions really really quickly I'm sorry I, I, I have to look at my watch and I've, I've actually got to end I know there's still some there is still some on the syllabus or on the outline today but again remember outline not contract um, so <laughs> um, any, any thoughts or questions? Did y'all enjoy this story? Yes. Okay, good. I did too. That's one of my favorites. It's just a reminder that God works in ways that we will never expect him to work. And even when we think that, you know, even when we think, well, I just do not see a way beyond this. I don't, there's no way I've got time. I don't have the resources. You know, I don't, you know, I, <laughs> the enemy's too big. God always shows us that he's bigger than all of that. All right, well, let me pray, and then I've got a scoop. All right, let me pray. Lord, thank you for giving us, again, a story of wonder, of power, um, a story that should scare us if, we are, if we're honest with ourselves, that you know, we never want to be on the wrong side of your, of your will. Lord, uh, we pray that we would learn lessons about uh, just about faithfulness and and trust but lord we thank you that you are the god who 
does greater uh, things greater than we ever expect or imagine in the furtherance of your purposes. So, Lord, we thank you for being God. And we thank you for allowing us to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen.